Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Privilege. The word alone can make us flinch. The notion that for no good reason some might have it better than others offends our sensibilities. Yet until we talk about it, we'll never fully understand it or find our way forward. My guest, Amy Julia Becker, welcomes us into her life from the charm of her privileged Southern childhood to her adult experience in the Northeast and the denials she has faced as the mother of a child with special needs. She shows us how a life behind a white picket fence can restrict even as it protects and how it can prevent us from loving our neighbors well. White Picket Fences invites us to respond to privilege with generosity, humility, and hope. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Amy Julia Becker. Amy Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you. You've written a really interesting book. It's a great read, White Picket Fences. And it it's a book that talks about your own life story, but how it connects with your own discovery of whiteness, identity, and privilege. And, and it's interesting because you write in a deeply personal way. And the, these, oftentimes today, the way these terms are discussed is not very personal. And oftentimes you're, it's either people kind of talking at one group, right? You have a group of people that are talking about privilege and things like this to people that are not really as self-conscious about it. Or you've got people talking about the people talking about privilege, calling them social justice warriors or snowflakes and stuff like that. So it's, it's often, there's not, it, 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 it seems to me like it's a conversation that is really bereft of empathy and <laughs> reflection. <laughs> Does that ring true for you? It rings so true. I, um, uh, gosh, I feel like there are a lot of accusations um, and a lot of language that at least comes across as accusatory when it comes to issues of um, privilege. And some of those accusations are probably true and right, but that doesn't mean that they will ever change anything. They'll just make us make people feel accused and therefore defensive or ashamed. Um, and I think defensiveness and shame tends to lead us into our bunkers, not out into the world of trying to connect and um, confess wrongdoing and also move towards like, how can we live differently? Um, so I thought that writing a book that was personal in nature, that wasn't like, here, here I am, I've learned everything and now I'm going to teach you some lessons. <laughs> but actually, um, here I am as someone who is on a journey of understanding and reflection, and perhaps you can find yourself in that story. Seemed like there wasn't much of that going on, and um, I felt like that would be helpful to me and hoped that it would be helpful to other people too. Yeah, and this is this is an ongoing journey for you. This, I mean, you grew up in the South, and eventually as a child, right, you moved North. Mm-hmm. And, and you talk in the book about some of the kind of ways that, Southern racism is characterized by Northerners and kind of the way that sometimes in that description, people outside the South can sort of 
be unaware of the way racism looks and privilege looks in a different context. But but this was something that's been, you know, some of your awareness. I mean, you tell this really powerful story in the book about trying to about just realizing as you're looking at all these books on your shelves that none of them have black people in them. And, right. and you write to this you write to an author because you're trying to like I think it was maybe one of her books or something you're looking at and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is so harsh and there's realities and when do I introduce my children to this and she writes back to you gosh it just it never occurred to me that children in my community ever get to learn to we didn't get, we never got to pick an age appropriate time to introduce them to the horrors of Jim Crow or other this is this is just the reality we, we live in now this conversation these kinds of where uh, of eye-opening moments for you I mean they come well into adult life yeah. So it's funny. I mean, that situation where I was reading all of these classics of children's literature, it was really about my kids' books. Um, it did. It was well into adult life, you know, only, I don't know, five or 10 years ago that I noticed, wait a second, because I have chosen to read the books to my children that were read to me as a child, I have chosen books that all have white characters. And so then I went looking for books that had more diversity, more of a sense of not just being a mirror, as I have said in the book, but a door into other worlds. And I found that I didn't want to tell my kids those stories. I didn't want to tell them about um, some of the horrors of the past. Um, And so, yeah, I had this really hard and good exchange with an African-American friend of mine and, and when she said, it's never crossed my mind not to say that, you know? So, um, I think there's so many things that when you, you know, we need other, we need people outside of our vantage point, whatever that is to be able to see our vantage point more clearly, ask some good questions about it. And sometimes decide this needs to actually change. In the case of my bookshelf, I didn't get rid of all the books with white characters, I just looked for ways to actually expand that. Um, And that led to thinking not just about books, but also about all sorts of other aspects of my life. How have I seen that through just this lens of whiteness instead of in a broader way? What questions does that raise? And how um, does that help me and help others if I'm asking those questions? Yeah, this past week, a week or two, oh, actually a couple weeks ago, after Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed. Gabby Gifford, the congresswoman who was shot a couple years ago, her husband, who was an astronaut, you know, Navy veteran, I think, and an astronaut, tweeted out something to the effect of, well, I guess Churchill's whole be magnanimous in victory, that's out. And he was accosted for quoting Churchill, right? Mm. That, that, you know, that, that he would quote somebody who had such an ambiguous legacy around issues of race and colonialism. And, and so Bill Maher brought this up as, as recently on the show as, as, as this kind of, here's a guy that's sort of, uh, you know, seeming to be making a parenthetic kind of reference here and, and, and was saying, is this really kind of overboard with political correctness and stuff? And, and the panel actually kind of defended the critics of him on Twitter. And I, you know, you, you, you and yet you you which seemed to many people probably over the top and yet you know one of the guys who on the panel a guy who's actually one of my teachers at Princeton said you know there needs to be this lesson that uh 
older white men just can't walk around saying whatever's just in their head, right? And, 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 and you, I mean, it, it seems like there's this such a complex matrix of we think there's too much political correctness in our culture very often, you know, or at least people say that, like there, there's that, that there's oversensitivity. And yet some of that sensitivity is, is, is grounded in the fact, right, that, that there's a legacy of speech and speech patterns and images that, that are just still incredibly painful for people, right? Like, I mean, and, and this just seems like a tough place. And, and, and I mean, I bring this because I, I feel like you're trying to walk a, a path in this book that's that's honest and, and eye-opening and yet also real about the complexities of life and human language, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think... I have like 17 different thoughts in response to what you just said. Um, I do think we are at a place where we want to be listening to each other and not just reacting. And we're seeing a lot of reactions, but at the same time, um, there's such a, un well, so I guess I feel as though we want to see the past and perhaps even the present in black and white terms. And I don't mean that in terms of racial categories, but in terms of this is clearly X or it is clearly Y. So Churchill either has a bad legacy or a good one, as opposed to Churchill was a human being with a context and with a lot of complexities. How can we honor him as a human being and also acknowledge the ways in which he was a flawed person, just to use him as an example, but that's true of all of us. And so not to be dismissive of the times when people make comments that are insensitive or that are rude or um, that are just ignorant, but at the same time to try to understand those things in a com complex context, whether that's right now or in terms of history. We have a child with a disability. Our oldest daughter, Penny, has Down syndrome. And so language has become pretty important to me in terms of how we refer to people with intellectual disabilities, um, the slurs that can get lobbed her way or our way um, are also very real in a way that maybe they haven't been when I've thought about other groups of people in the past. But at the same time, people say things to me that, you know, don't, are not politically correct. Um, and yet I've gotten to a point where I want to engage in conversation unless they seem to be, it is very rare that someone's saying something to me trying to be hurtful. It is so much more often either I just haven't thought about that before or I'm accidentally saying this. Doesn't mean I give them a pass on it or don't say anything, but it does mean I want to actually engage in a relationship and in a conversation with that person instead. So I hope we can do more of that. And instead of just like throwing tweets at each other that back us into corners. You, you tell a story about Penny in the book. I mean, you open with some, with you talk about her birth and, and, and what, how part of your journey was you're indebted to her in that, you know, you, places that couldn't accommodate your child and stuff you're like gosh as a white person you don't think of that right mm. but now someone's a part of my immediate nuclear family who things will be closed off to her that wouldn't be closed off to the rest of us and, and you tell this wonderful story where she's like 10 or 11 i think and she goes into target and there's a, a greeter with down syndrome and you I, I loved the conversation you're like what did you notice about him he had down syndrome and she and you're like, how did you feel about that? And she said, well, it's pretty cool, right? And then you're you're like, oh my god, like, what? 
this, she still there's this moment of innocence right where you're like she she doesn't she doesn't feel othered by it yet mm-hmm. and, and what's gonna what's it gonna be like and then you talk about it in the books of othering and i have this idea but that's it's a powerful moment where you're like oh my gosh I, I wish I could not take this away from her. Yeah, I so want. And that's where I think the idea of like having pride in an identity that is other comes in. And that sense of, wait a second, um, even though I'm not in the mainstream of American culture, I might be on the margins for whatever reason, I can also um, can take pride in that and can be joined together with other people, not to the exclusion of the mainstream, but in a way that celebrates who we are and what we have to contribute. Um, and I hope that that will be true for Penny as she grows up. I mean, we had another conversation the other night because I told her I'm, you know, going out and I'm speaking about this book I've written about privilege. And I asked her if she knew what it was. And she said, no, I don't really know what you're talking about. And I said, well, it's like how socially sometimes it's easier for some people than other people. And so we went through kind of a list of things and she was like, yeah, I get it that it's easier for, white people than for people with brown skin to do some things in our culture. Cause we've talked about that before. And I said, is it easier? Do you think to have down syndrome or not? And she's like, Oh, it's easier not to, but I'm very flexible. <laughs> like, <she's> like, <laughs> like, and she is, she has low muscle tone because she has down syndrome. So she can do the splits. And it was just this funny thing where she has grown up being like, she's like, Oh yeah, it's, def- it's more challenging in school. It's more challenging with friends to have down syndrome. Like that is just a, fact of her life it's not something to be ashamed of it's not something to pretend isn't true but she also doesn't see it as like an impediment it's just a reality and there's some things like I can do the splits that a lot of other people can't do and isn't that cool too so and there's obviously an innocence she's 12 years old you know and um I don't know what struggles she's going to encounter uh as a result of having down syndrome as her life goes on But I also am really grateful to live in a moment where we are more aware of how identity is shaped and what it might mean to not want everyone to be exactly the same all the time and to actually value human beings for differences and not just their similarities. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting the way you talk about the givenness. Like, it seems like there's an acceptance of the givenness of her Down syndrome. Like, it's it's there. You know, it's it's sort of, and you talk about, you have this interesting story in the book where where it's like your first experience of the privilege walk exercise, which you know mm. s- some of listeners may know, m- many probably don't. But you you're sort of everybody starts in the same line and sort of like take a step forward if you grew up with you know people who if your parents went to college or take a step forward if you grew up with more than X number of books, you know take a step backward if you're uh, not white or a minority or if you're you know it's certain like things in your background growing and so and most these are the thing about the privilege walk right the the point is it's stuff you don't choose right these are just realities but it shows how like people are at a different starting point in life before there's any decisions or choices made and 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 then you talk later in the book about how you've come to see that privilege is is a thing that can be used for good or ill but it almost sounds like you you've you've demoralized the givenness of it, like just like Penny's, like, well, yeah, I got Down syndrome, and yeah, it's challenging, but there, I'm very flexible. You're kind of like, well, here's a privilege, and there can come some guilt with it, and struggle a little bit legacy. And also, there's some things I, I can, I can be aware of. I can use that and and and, and lean into it in, in ways that are that are a good thing for people, and try to 
lean away from ways in which it becomes entitlement, right? And I mean, I'm wondering how you, was there a, a time early on in your awareness where you did moralize it? Like where the white guilt's paralyzing, where you're seeing racism mm. around every corner and, you know, like it's, you know, somebody says, you know, hey, you want a flat white here at Starbucks? Why is it got to be a flat white? You know, <laughs> like, why is it got to be a flat white? You know, like, I mean, was there, was there a sort of time when the privilege awareness was paralyzing? Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there are still times when it feels paralyzing. I don't want to be like disingenuous as if I've arrived and, um, I have a chapter in the book. It's not called this anymore, but at one point it was called stuck behind a wall of privilege. Like it just feels like the same social forces that keep anyone in any situation. I feel like have, um, often, um, I feel like they've conspired to keep me in this place and I can't get out. And that's not true, but it sometimes feels that way. Um, and I do think that that sense of guilt, but also that sense of like, I didn't mean to be here, you know, like I didn't just, I didn't choose to have parents who read to me. I'm really great. And actually, and I'm really grateful that I had that. So that almost, am I supposed to feel guilty for that? Or do I just want that for more people? So lots of those questions have, they continue to swirl in my head, but I do think I've also gotten to a point of, um, gratitude and living in like a complex place where I can try to name both the good and the bad. Um, and certainly not to be complacent with what is bad in my position or in being a person of privilege, but also recognizing that this is not a magic wand. Like this is not something I can just fix easily, which is actually kind of a fallacy of whiteness. I think to think that I can just like, as long as I understand the problem, I can just fix it. Um, instead of saying this is complex and it's big and it's deep. And there's a humility in saying, okay, here's how I was born. Here's what I was born with. How can I use it? Well, um, how can I receive it with gratitude, but also use it in a way that is actually like breaking down walls and um, connecting with other people and loving other people and doing that in a, in a good way. Um, and I think writing this book helped me to move from just that place of paralysis or like not knowing what to do. And it's, again, it's not that I have some huge list of things to do, but I feel more empowered to, um, own the good things of my life, but hold them loosely in such a way that it's like, I know that I don't deserve all of this. And so I want it to be shared. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it, it, as I read the book, you know, there's this, I was thinking about Luther's adage, Martin Luther and the Reformation, mm. that, that, you know, we're all Simon used to set Picado or we're, we're at the same time sinner and saint, as opposed to, I think what he saw in the, in some of the, you know, really the Roman, the medieval Catholicism at his time that he found lacking was that you're always either sinner or saint, right? Like you're kind of, you were in one or the other, you know, like, and, and, and even in your own journey, you're, well, I, I, I've sort of fallen off the wagon and now I've got to get, go back to the sacramental system and get back on the wagon. You no, know, we're always both on and off the wagon. We're always sinner and saint. Or my friend Paul Zoll says, you know, today it'll be, we're, we're both loved and human you know, that th th this reality is. And so, I mean, that seems to me to be something in your own story, as you know, that, that came to characterize the way you looked at the privilege stuff, right? It's sinner and saint. It's both and. It's not either or, but it's, it's always, it's always, there's always complexity to sort of deal with, right? And that's just, you never graduate from that. 
And I do think, yeah, it's like that, um, the both and of human nature. And they're actually, in some ways, I think there are three aspects to it. And this having a child with a disability has also been really helpful to me. So there's our belovedness, right? This idea, like the saint part, um, and that being something that's given by God and that we also can be participating in or kind of leaning into. And then there's the sin part, like that we just make bad choices and we turn into ourselves and we disregard um, God and others all the time. But there's also just like the human part in terms of just like we're limited human beings. Like we can't solve all the problems of the world. We're not supposed to. We can't do everything. We're not superhuman and we're not God. And that limitation is not the same, I don't think, as like the sin part. Um, yeah, yeah, but they sometimes there, get confused. There's a difference between fallenness and finitude, right? Like, mm-hmm. like uh, there's something about like our own, the fact that like in our finitude, sometimes we turn to uh, anxiety or or various forms of uh, of tragic, self defeating behavior or victimizing behavior. That's that's different than just the finitude itself, right? Like the finitude isn't bad, isn't evil, right? And so, like learning to like love your limits probably actually prevents more evil than it causes, right? Exactly. And just, yeah. And I think one of the things for me in like exploring privilege, um, I write about in the book, just like coming to a place of deciding to pray weekly um, in a more concentrated and deliberate way than I ever have about anything um, about these topics. And I really did after a couple of months of doing that, I like expected the world to have changed because I like happened to engage with this problem. And it was such a humbling moment for me to realize how arrogant I had been in thinking now that I'm paying attention, (laughs) things are going to get better. Hey, I'm Um, white. I'm white. And I'm on the problem. (laughs) Seriously, like as opposed to being like oh my gosh like how long have your african-american like brothers and sisters been praying about this without answers that are satisfactory from god right like and so that was such a humbling experience for me and so good in terms of like you keep praying like that's what you do um and you accept your limitations that like yeah there are little ways in which i certainly can behave differently, can love people better, even ways in which I have like influence and can on small levels, like change more than just individuals, but systems. And I want and need to like participate in that, but there's a heck of a lot I will never be able to do. And I need to like have the humility to recognize my limits in that and to trust that there's still something bigger, um, like a love that powers this universe that is bigger than me, that is still at work. And I just get to like play a small part in that. Yeah. In the book, you, you quote Hannah Arendt in her famous book, you know, the banality of evil where, you know, she's thinking, about, I feel like Eichmann who are explaining, I'm just kind of doing my job. I'm part of the bureaucracy. Right. But like, and, and she's not there making light of it. She's saying it's the banality is that like, you routinize it, right? So, so this is part of why systems work so well, right? That they, you don't have to do anything for the systemic racism or sexism or stuff to perpetuate itself. You just get up, you do your thing, everybody does. And so, like, it's, it's, it, you know, it's the banality of it that makes it so exhausting, right? Cause then you're like, oh my gosh, this is, this is really permeating so many things that it's not just like, the uh, the to-do list that you can tackle with some fortitude, right? 
And it's so far reaching. Um, so I might in my mind think it would be really nice to have neighbors who don't have the same, you know, racial and ethnic background and socioeconomic status as me, but like there's a whole history of laws, policies, and then just social decisions that have led to our neighborhoods. So it's not to say I can't actively choose to move into a different neighborhood, but at the same time, there's like so much embedded in any of those decisions. Um, and it's not necessarily helpful for me to decide to pick up and move into a new neighborhood. I mean, that's just to pick one example. There's so many of them. But I do think starting to ask the questions and trying to see the ways that um, whiteness operates in my life has been helpful. And then trying to think through um, what, can, how can I respond to this? How do I want this to work? Um, and and what harm has it done? What harm has it done? Not only to the people who've been cut off from access to some of the opportunities I'd, I've had almost without even thinking of it, but also what harm has it done to me and to my children and to my um, kind of, you know, little in-group to be so insular and to not be thinking about these things. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenning, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You, you tell the story in your book about the day Donald Trump surprisingly kind of won the election and how your two daughters are talking at the table. They're like, it's so, such a bummer that our president's not going to be a girl. And then your son is like, I, 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 was he saying like, I'm really concerned that like, he doesn't understand that we don't have enough money to build this wall. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, if, I wonder, you know, some of your own intensive and intentional journey started, you know, before the ascendancy of Donald Trump. And now, I mean, it seems like so much is, 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 is at least different after the results of this election, particularly the way that, identity has been brought into politics especially white identity in a way that's really 
this explicitly. We haven't seen it in a while. And I mean, has that has that changed how you've you know been working through those things? I mean, in some sense, this book is written, you know, in the you know at least at the tail end of some of it of the Donald Trump phenomenon. I mean, how has that changed the way you process white identity? Yeah, it's been fascinating. I um, actually kind of signed the unofficial contract for this book the morning after the election in 2016. So I'd been working on it, but in terms of like actually coming to an agreement with the publisher, it was the morning after. And as you said, it was a surprising result. So we didn't know, you know, what would happen in these next two years, but um, it, I think what we have seen, I think that a lot of the divisions, um, I think they've been in the underneath the surface for a long time and they've bubbled to the top. Um, and my hope is that that will actually allow us to force us almost to deal with them in a constructive and healthy way. Although that's not what it looks like most of the time. Um, I read a piece by David Brooks this past week called the rich white civil war. Great piece. Great piece. Yeah. And I was encouraged, here's what I was encouraged by. So it basically said, I mean, it sounds like you've read it, but for listeners like that, the um, 8% on both the far left and the far right are rich and white. And then there's 67%. And obviously that's not accounting for all the people who are in the middle who are not necessarily politically aligned. So you've got left and right, but there he called them the exhausted middle. And I thought, okay, what would energize the exhausted middle? Yeah. Like yeah. that's the question that I'm interested in. Because, yeah, you've got these people who are just, like, fighting with each other ideologically, and I don't see how that changes or moves. But if you've got the vast majority of the country who don't agree with each other, but they don't particularly care that they don't agree with each other because they are just exhausted by all this fighting, they want to work. I'm I'm guessing that means they want to work together. I'm hoping that. And I'm like, what would energize that group? Fighting is not energizing that group. They're exhausted by the fighting. So is there a message of, like, hope that's real, right? Not like just pie in the sky hope, but hope that actually um, deals with suffering, that deals with injustice, and that says, hey, guys, there's so much we have accomplished as a nation. Let's tackle this. Like, we can do it. Um, I know it sounds idealistic, but I think there is the possibility, because we're so aware of these divisions, um, the possibility of us actually addressing them in small and large ways and making a difference. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the points he makes is that this, you know, this 8% on one end and 6% that, that, that this extremes that make up like 14% of the country, when they survey the the progressive like left and the, and the, and the devoted conservative, or whatever this, these two polar things that they like almost all the time and they're 90 some percent the opposite. Like, well, is sexual harassment a problem? One group says 90%. We asked one group says 90%. No, is that like they go through all these hot button issues where in the middle, you, you look at this, you know, some two thirds that from like four or five other groups that, you know, they find like this exhausted majority. It's just like 80% of them think we're too politically correct. And 80% also think hate speech is a big problem or 80% wish the people they dis, the wish people that disagreed work together more as opposed, so yeah that they're 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 but you know it's interesting as brooke says that they that you know that this is part of privilege right like aristotle talks about you need you need leisure time to do philosophy i mean the privileged people have time to have an ideology yes. and, and and so many people that are caught in the middle are just thinking about getting by and so don't don't have as much 
don't put as much time into uh, a, a, a kind of the kind of concrete thinking that would move their concerns forward. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think of just even the privilege of being able to write a book about these things. I mean, similarly, like sit around and think about them and then put that on paper. Um, and, and yet I also think that that's what I mean in terms of though it being on the surface of our lives and not just this like deeply, it is a deeply embedded reality that we've got racial and socioeconomic um, and other like down the list divisions in our culture that's deeply embedded, but it's also on the surface right now. So that even if you are not, if you don't have time to like develop a strong ideology at the same time, you're more aware of, um, some of these issues. And if there were leaders who are looking for ways to energize that middle, I think that there's a lot of good that could come from that in terms of pragmatic solutions. Like, I, and you've got, I think, small examples of cities. And lo- I think the local level is probably the more hopeful poss- place of possibilities where you get Democrats and Republicans and, you know, different people coming together to say, let's just try to like, actually tackle some of the problems of our town. Let's build relationships with each other. Let's, you know, do some stuff. Um, I think on the national level, that's harder. Um, And certainly when we have rallies that are just like raising the temperature and um, inviting people to think simplistically, that's not helpful um, because it's not true. It's not speaking to the full truth of what's going on, who we are as human beings or any of that. Yeah, it's interesting too. Like the 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 identity politics thing. First of all, I mean Ezra Klein says I, I maybe I might agree with him on this. That all politics is identity politics, except when you're a big enough majority, it just becomes politics. So so if you're the if you're the white middle class, that's still an identity politic, but there's just enough of you that it becomes politics, right? And so that that when somebody is a statistical minority, it's identity politics. When really. They're just advocating for their concerns, okay. same way that the majority is advocating for theirs, right? But you, but you have enough numbers, you can say, "I'm not identity politicking; I'm just politicking," right? Totally, and, but it also just bothers me that we would think that if that, that like a black man and a white man might not actually have overlapping concerns, like so. I agree. I do think sometimes I think are we. I don't want to in any way say that there's not very real differences between different identities that need to be acknowledged. But I also think there's a lot that we have in common with one another when it comes to the way we, what, like what we want with the justice system, what we want for schools. Like why would we not care about that for one another and only care about our in-group? Um, I think that comes out of fear. And I think that it comes out of a sense of scarcity. But I think that if we look at the world through different lenses, through um, lenses of possibility and abundance and growth and love, that changes those um, that sense of like, I've just got to protect my own uh, instead of I am going to trust that as I care for other people, that's also going to be good for me. Like those things actually can go together. Yeah. I, I just you noticed too. I mean, Francis Fukuyama wrote a book decades ago called the end of history. And he came, he's a political science scientist somewhere in California the university, but he wrote a new book on identity. He was saying what's interesting and, and causes what he feels like a social tension in America's at the same time that we have less and less seeming national unity, like overarching identity that we all say, yeah, we're this right. 
we we at the same time that's on the decline our ability to come up with new forms of particular identity right around gender around you know intersectionality that I'm, I'm I'm at several different kinds of things and this makes my like these things almost seem like one is on the rise one is on the decline which seems to make the the tribalism that people are talking about feel more real because it's it's not only do we realize how some of our identity differences but then it gets harder and harder to name things exactly like you're saying it, it seems like it shouldn't be harder but but to say the story we're all a part of that that be, that seemingly is a little more elusive yeah and i i think about that a lot back to this question of my daughter's identity as both a you know white woman as a member of our family as a person with down syndrome um and my hope for her is that like what roots her as a human being is that sense of common identity that goes underneath the differences, but that that's not a way of making her like of disregarding the fact that she has down syndrome. Um, but instead a way to actually have a bedrock from which we can actually celebrate our diversity. Um, I think of, you know, friends of mine who are people of color or, um, people I know with intellectual disabilities and just wanting to, see myself in who they are and vice versa, but not in such a way that I am dismissive of the very real differences and challenges that they face, but being connected enough that I have like compassion in those places. And I feel like invested in that. I feel invested in certainly the discrimination that people with disabilities experience because I have a daughter with a disability. But I, in terms of my, you know, friendships with people of color, I'm like, I feel invested in what is happening in our nation um, because I love you. And, and I want that to matter to me, even if it means I'm ostensibly giving something up as a white person. I mean, I don't think I see it in those terms anymore, but I want, I want that sense of mutuality to be what drives and animates the way I'm thinking about things and not just like what's in it for me. Yeah, you, towards the end of the book, you have this great, you make this great point. You say the privilege of whiteness and wealth can become a wall against the privilege of being human. Love not for status or performance, but simply loved and able to give love in return, not because of obligation, but in grateful response to an invitation. That That's interesting. Inter, then you say, I've been given much that I do not deserve. And so it's almost like the the pain of privilege is when you you when you paper over the fact that it's there it it makes the pressure cooker of life all the more a pressure cooker mm. and and then you know that the, it becomes a sort of a performance standard measure hey i'm white i got i got you know it's not so it's almost for you seeing the the privilege thing has enabled you to sort of to be a little more freed from the achieving treadmill and, and and there's this sense in which hey look a lot of the stuff i've 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 done or I, I i has not been you know because i was this particularly you know i that i was it was all my own effort there's a lot i've been given i don't deserve and i could be i'm grateful and also can be mindful of when maybe that came at the expense of others and how to live in light of that i mean that's the, the contrary i think people pull away from the conversation because they fear it'll be taxing. But, but what you can include in the book is you feel freer actually. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, again, some of this goes back to my daughter and recognizing that um, I, when I thought when she was born, I was going to be like, my walls were going to close in because I was only going to be thinking about disability and connected to people with disabilities. And instead, it was like it opened up this world for me where as I came to receive her and be like, oh my gosh, you are just a beloved human being, period. Not because you're achieving developmental milestones, which you're not. Like you're not developing at the same rate as the other kids the same age. And that has nothing to do with your value as a human being. When I then saw the ways in which I had spent my whole life thinking, I have to race to catch up or be ahead of the curve in order to prove my worth. What freedom there is in saying, no, actually you don't. Like you could get bad grades and be a beloved human being. Like that's a really freeing message. And it's one that I so want for myself. Um, And I so recognize that I, growing up in a predominantly white and achievement-oriented culture, have um, so readily played into and believed a lie that like what I do is who I am. And so if I don't keep doing it and doing it well, then I don't even know who I am, much less do I believe that I'm like valuable and loved. And if it goes the other way around, where I start off by believing that like there's a God of the universe who loves me and there are other people who love me independent of what I do for them, that like frees me to discover who I am and to give from that place in a totally different way. So I think there's been so much freedom for me um, in flipping that, like not what I do is who I am, but who I am and understanding that belovedness is what enables me to be excited about what I do. Well, so much of this difficult conversation is really bereft of the kind of language about grace and and freedom in which you write. And and so thank you. I mean, I really, it's a great book. And I think for anybody that cares about these issues or, or maybe even doesn't know, and they should care that white picket fence is, is, is a great place to start. Thanks for writing it and for spending some time talking to me about it. Oh, thank you so much for those words. It was really a pleasure. Thanks for listening to give and take. If you liked what you heard, Please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Amy Julia for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, White Picket Fences, Turning Toward Love in a World Divided by Privilege. Thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, bear the love.